Welcome to Temple Talks, the podcast of Temple Israel in Minneapolis, where Jewish wisdom meets our ever-changing world. Join us as we chat with partners and thought leaders from around town and around the world. We hope these talks will inspire and challenge you. And give us all new ideas about Judaism, religious life, and social justice. So it's a pleasure to be sitting here across from David Harris, the executive director of Rimon. Uh, which he'll tell us more about and about his time there. And uh, full disclosure that I've been a, a joyous, really joyous member of the Ramon board over the last year or so. And so I've got to see a little bit of the inner workings of the Jewish arts scene that's thriving around the Twin Cities and how Ramon plays a big role in nourishing that. So I'm excited to to speak to you, David, about, about the organization, about the Jewish arts, and a, a little bit about yourself, too. So welcome to Temple Talks. Thank you. It's my pleasure to speak on every single thing you just mentioned. So yeah, let's, let's start with, could you just give us a little bit of, of background about what is Ramon for people who haven't heard of it or have, have seen its logo but don't know its scope? And, how, and then I'd also love to hear some of the history, but, but first kind of what Ramon is today. So Rimon is a art service organization. It supports artists and the arts, Jewish artists specifically, although we have funded many non-Jewish artists and non-Jewish arts organizations that are impacted dealing with Jewish values, Jewish history and experience. And this has been some of the most potent work that we've actually been associated with. But over the years, and it's been 26 now since we were founded, Ramon has had its hand in producing, funding, and advocating for the arts, too. We didn't know in the beginning that advocating would be such a large part of our work, but the arts have to make their case every day why they belong in the center of the community's life, as opposed to, well, the arts are nice, but it's a frill and it's a enhancement. No, the arts are actually central to a healthy community's life. What are some of those reasons that you found that the arts need to be central or are central or should be restored to their centrality? Tell us more about that. Well, let's look at the moment we find ourselves in where the pandemic has upended everything about how we live our lives. We have discovered that more than ever, people are turning to the arts. And these are not professional artists. These are just members of the community. They are turning to the arts to, first of all, find satisfaction, to explore new ways to find meaning in their lives and pleasure. The arts are actually an important part of our personal health. They also turn out to be a very important part of the public health scenario. So a vital art scene is a great indicator of the health of the community. Of course, the Twin Cities is one of the most important meccas of the arts in the United States. And through this period of time, our arts institutions have had a big hill to climb, but have done it really remarkably well to stay of service to the artists who have been hit harder than almost any other mm -hmm. sector of the uh, working force, and also uh, stay of service to the community as well. And that has been Ramon's big challenge as well, is how to stay useful, how to stay important in this moment. And in fact, even though 
I never would have guessed it. The last two years have been two of the most important years for Ramon in terms of of supporting artists and making the community alive to the arts, all of them, the, the, the performing arts, the visual arts, literary arts, all of this. What have been some examples of of Ramon supporting the, the moment we're in. So one example of what Ramon has done in this moment was we created an online artist directory, which has been a dream of mine for a number of years. And finally, all the pieces fell into place. That can be seen at mnjewishartists.org. It's raised the profile of artists in the community, as well as made them accessible through these online profiles to the public. And in fact, just the other day, I got an email from one of the synagogues that said, this directory is so fantastic. We hired someone who did a tremendous job for us because of having found her at your artist directory. So it's a connector and it's a way for any number of organizations to get access to what artists have to offer, which is so much, so vital, not only their artistic form, but their values. Artists are are values-driven, and that is so important in a moment like this, which is so hungry for what matters most. So that's a perfect example of how Ramon stepped into this moment and actually created gold out of the dross that we've been presented with. Yeah, you said that's at mnjewishartists.org. Right. And just uh, you shared one example of a a synagogue finding someone on there. Mm -hmm. But I'd love if you just shared with the listeners a couple other use cases or, or opportunities that this directory provides. So for an individual or for a non-synagogue organization or for a synagogue, how do you think people are using or could be using the directory? So it's also an opportunity for artists to collaborate with each other. It's, uh, it has several search functions built within it. So you can discover, say, a poet who wants to work with a musician can discover what musicians are interested in collaborating. So all of that's available at that directory. I should also say that non-Jewish individuals and organizations use this directory as well. So you say, well, why would that be? And actually, the arts are an amazing bridge into our culture. Actually, it's hard for us to imagine, but Jewish institutions can be intimidating. You don't know where to begin. You don't know if you belong, if you're not Jewish. Even some Jews feel like they don't know if they belong in those institutions. But the arts organizations are an ideal way to cross that bridge. And I'll I'll just also know that that while directory to some people sounds like yellow pages or something. The directory is actually filled with photos and videos of the artists and their work. It links to their social media. It has what they're interested in pursuing right now. So it's really a a, a well-developed resource. I'm just uh, flipping through it and seeing some people that I recognize and more videos of them than I had found on my own. So it's it seems like a really strong resource. While, while we're kind of uh, exploring what Ramon's doing today, would you tell us about the other staple programs and offerings of Ramon in terms of grant making or or other programs that people might want to access? So one of the earliest programs that we got running 
in 2005, I believe is when it began, was our project support granting program. And since then, I think 116 projects have been funded and they cover the entire spectrum of art making. Every medium has received funding in one way or another, from puppet making and performance to paper cutting to novelists. Every imaginable art form has been funded. And as I said uh, before, by Jews and non-Jews as well. So you're thinking, well, what would be an example of a non-Jewish arts organization that would come to Ramon for support? So here's an example. I'm pulling it out of my head. In the Heart of the Beast, uh, Mask and Puppet Theater was doing a remarkable production about Charlotte Solomon, who was an important Jewish artist connected to the Holocaust and whose work was stunning and made a big impression. So they are doing a production about her. And of course, they needed production money, but they also needed the ability to reach out into the Jewish community who should have, who should be a primary uh, stakeholder and audience for them. And Ramon offers that almost better than anything, our ability to create these relationships for artists. I've, I myself am a musician and a writer, and I know from my own experience that uh, artists need help more than anything almost as much as they need money, if not more, in building an audience for their work. And that has been one of our most important contributions to the art scene, is creating that audience, creating that public, creating the desire and interest to support artists. If you've just excited someone who has an artistic project coming up, What's the timeline? What does it take to to apply for one of these grants? Should they should they be attracted to doing so? So we fund twice a year, fall and spring, and the application requires a little work. And there are th three criteria we're looking for. We're looking for first of all, is it excellent in its own way? Of course, how you define excellence depends on what the nature of the project is. Somebody who's working with teenagers may have a very different standard for excellence where process is more important than the actual outcome. On the other hand, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra came to Ramon for funding for a remarkable series they did highlighting the work of Jewish composers during the Holocaust. Obviously, the excellence quotient for the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra was very high. So we're looking for uh, excellence, but we're also looking for work that has community impact. And by that, I mean it matters to someone other than just the artist who is making the work. And I, I personally, as the executive director, love helping artists imagine who their audience might be. And then the third criterion is ability to complete the project. You can go to Ramon's website, RamonMN.org, where there is an online application available. And I should say that we have funded projects as early as the research and development phase. We mm -hmm. We sent two artists to Bangladesh once as part of the research they were doing and all the way to post-production for a film. So there, there's another program that Ramon has been deeply invested in. This is its 15th year of producing artist salons. 
the artist salons are a way to lift the veil um, on how does an artist do his or her their work? What motivates them? And in fact, the next salon involves a commission. This is very special because we're commissioning a marvelous choreographer, Adam McKinney, who's currently based in Texas, but who has Midwestern roots, who will be making new work and it will be premiered in May at, at an artist salon at the Capri Theater on the North Side. And Adam is a Jew of color who is a very accomplished choreographer. So I think everybody is excited, Jews and non-Jews, choreographers and everyone else, to see what work is Adam making and what he chooses to respond to in this moment in time. Where peeling back the curtain and seeing some of the choices behind the work is really having a moment. I've just been watching the Beatles documentary, Get Back, which is hardly a documentary. It's really just uh, an, open, an open eye on what was going on in their studio for a couple of weeks. And likewise, in this on Zoom era that we're in, where we're by default seeing into people's homes that we've never seen before, into clergy's homes, into congregants' homes, into artists' homes, we're also seeing more of the home studio for different artists and breaking some of the barrier between people and artists of only seeing finished products. Now we're seeing a lot more opportunity to see midway products and talk about the process. And I think people are fascinated by that. Right, because truly one of the uh, features of making art is that it can take a very, very long time from the inception, the very beginning, the seed that gets planted, to when it actually shows up in the reader's hands or the viewer's seat uh, watching a stage. Often the process can go on for 10 or 12 years in some cases. Not always that long, but that that's not unusual. Why should somebody spend 10 years of their life making work? That seems not very cost efficient if you look at it from the standards of of, of a business person. What's in it for the artist? And what's in it for the artist is that they live in that place. That tree grows out of that seed. So the artist salons have proven to be enormously popular with our audience and with our artists. We pay the artists for this, and that is a cultural practice of Ramon always. We never ask an artist to work for free. Actually, when they go to the co-op, they have to purchase their groceries just like the next person does. So we always are looking for ways to support the professional life of our artists. One more question about, about resources, and then we'll, we'll move to another topic. Let's say a listener is not in Minnesota, or they're mm -hmm. in Minnesota and they just are looking for even more or different resources as a Jewish artist. Is there a national organization that, that, that you think it does a lot of similar efforts to Ramon? You're asking an interesting question. There used to be the Foundation for Jewish Culture, which went under a handful of years ago. We are in a moment of time in which there is no effective national Jewish cultural arts organization. Some might disagree with me, but as a working artist, I can tell you that is true. I can also say that we had organizations like that in the past. 
that did not serve a very broad swath of artists. It served what I would call an elite uh, small group of very fine artists. But what about everyone else? And as you can tell, that's part of my vision, which is a more grassroots, pluralistic, democratic approach to engaging as many people as possible in the arts. So that is what I'm looking for to develop. And when people ask me, David, what will you do after you retire? I do know that my commitment to the Jewish arts is ongoing and my relationships with these national leaders will continue because this is this is the um, next great frontier is getting a national advocacy organization together. It doesn't exist right now. You have announced that you're going to retire as the director of Rimon, and you're the founding director of the organization. First of all, congratulations on, uh, on that announcement. But why don't you take us back to the founding of Rimon? What was going on that, that led to the birth of this organization? Sure. There have been a lot of Jewish artists in the Twin Cities community since the day I moved here. I'm not from the Twin Cities originally, but I've lived here my entire adult life. And lots of Jewish artists, but they didn't necessarily work in tandem with each other. And certainly the organizational Jewish community did not have a particularly organized approach towards the artists, perhaps would have relationships with one artist or two artists, but there was nothing coordinated about it. And it was, first of all, an inefficient way to operate, but also it made artists feel marginalized and invisible. So in the beginning, Brechit, what motivated a group of artists with institutional leaders and audience members who love the arts to come together it was a desire to have a more coordinated approach to supporting the arts. We had no idea in the beginning what that would look like 26 years ago. No idea. It revealed itself and it began, first of all, with a recognition of how many artists there were in the community. One of our earliest projects, in fact, was creating an artist directory. It was hard copy. It looked a little bit like a purple phone book. And we were stunned by how many artists there were. And one of the things that I discovered was how meaningful that was to artists to even be recognized, to be made visible. I remember talking to a woman on the phone who was a visual artist and I said, please tell me about your work. She paused and then said with a catch in her voice, this is the first time that anyone in the Jewish community has ever asked me about my work. And it was very emotional for her. This directory was a way of making people who felt invisible, visible, who made them feel like their work mattered, that they had a posse. So we began 26 years ago. Evan Maurer, who was the director of the Minneapolis Institute of Arts, was a key person. He was a out Jew leading a arts organization. There were pl plenty of leaders who were Jewish, but they did not necessarily make a deal of that. Evan did. He founded the Judaica Gallery 
at the Institute. He uh, was very proud of it and wanted to use his power, his authority to help Jewish uh, arts flourish in this community. From the Federation, we had Rabbi Chaim Herring, who was the director of, of the Department of Identity and Continuity. Those were the buzzwords back then. And those were two critical institutional leaders. We had Judith Bryn Ingber, choreographer and dancer, who brought forward years of experience and passion for what the arts mean to a community. And we also had the two leaders of the JCCs, the late Ruth Ann Weiss, who was the director for so many years of the Minneapolis JCC's cultural arts program, as well as Kevin Olson, all these people coming together. And we used to meet uh, at the Minneapolis Institute of Art in their administrative section. And we had no idea what seeds we were planting, but first we produced Jewish arts conferences that were attended by hundreds of people at the Art Institute. And that hecture from the Art Institute was terribly important because it, was, it took place outside of these Jewish institutional spaces. It made it somehow more legitimate, more important. How ironic is that? But that has been part of the evolution of the Jewish arts, I should say, is its movement out. It doesn't just live in Jewish spaces. The Jewish arts belong in all of the theaters, in all of the galleries, in all of the bookstores, on every shelf. And that has been the big change that's happened in the last 15 or so years. So we've been speaking about Ramon as an organization, but I want to speak about David Harris as David Harris. So could you tell us who are you as an artist, who are you as a Jew, and who are you as a Jewish artist? So I'm a musician and a writer. Those are my primary art forms. Although I should say that I've always had a strong taste. It's more than a taste. It's an appetite for collaboration. So in the work I've done on stage, which has been pretty extensive, I often find myself collaborating, especially with choreographers and dancers. I, I love working with them. Of course, with other musicians who... I'm a vocalist almost exclusively. I love working with instrumentalists as well, but I also work in the theater. So I love to collaborate, but most people know me as, as a singer. And my, my vocal work has taken me from the stage of opera houses and concert stages into community centers and many non-conventional performance spaces as well, because I'm interested in the voice as a expression of the, of the human soul. I also have written a number of plays that have been produced, several of them by the Illusion Theater. And this desire to work in the arts, I think, was planted in me from very early on. Also planted in me from very early on was a great pride in being Jewish. And you may think, well, of course, but I came from a very assimilated Jewish family. My parents were proudly Jewish, but they were not very big on synagogue attendance. And I have to say that my siblings were not particularly interested 
in cultivating their Jewish lives, proudly Jewish, but on the periphery of Jewish life. And this gave me, I think, special insight and feeling for that large world of Jewish people whom the synagogues and Jewish agencies never see, but who are looking for a bridge into Jewish life. And by the way, that has been one of Ramon's greatest contributions, is creating that bridge over and over again for members of the Jewish population who are otherwise not particularly active in our Jewish community. They're looking for those bridges, but they don't want to have to join a synagogue, for example. That's not where uh, their soul is striving towards that. So I had, from a very early age, a strong sense of pride in being Jewish. I used to say I was the only boy in Canton, Ohio, who liked religious school. You know, I thought it was fascinating. I loved it. And then as a young man, as I was studying voice and stepping into the world of professional music, I was working in many different situations that were not Jewish at all. But... One of my very first professional jobs was I was the bass soloist at the Adath Yashurin when they had marvelous, marvelously supported choir. And that opened a door for me that had really never quite been opened before. And that was the world of Jewish liturgical music that came mostly from, an, from that Eastern European root not exclusively, but I was fascinated. There was one member of that choir who was a completely untrained singer, a tenor, who sang the most beautiful kind of Jewish soul music you could hope for, and it was all instinctive for him. He could improvise and ornament, not coming from an academic place, but coming from a heart place that educated me in the most profound way. And so that's how my entrance into the local Jewish community really took place. In a conventional synagogue. In a conventional synagogue. But I used to say I was so far off the, the, the grid of the organized Jewish community that the Federation didn't even ask me for a donation. They didn't know I existed. And yeah. uh, that's how far off I was. But that opportunity, which, by the way, I should emphasize, that opportunity came to me because I needed to make money. And that was a job for me. Young artists need to be supported. Do not ask them to work for free. Use your imagination and look for ways that you can support people who are in the beginning of their working lives. I probably never would have gotten involved in the same way had it not been for that professional opportunity, for which I thank the Adath Yashurin. Now, it led to me becoming a cantorial soloist, which was nothing I ever imagined was a possibility for myself. And then for 21 years, I was the music director at Shir Tikva and I had no idea that any of this lay in front of me. And so life revealed itself to me. Then I co-founded a 
a Jewish performance organization called Voices of Sfarad, and many people in the community know me from my performance work with that organization. Uh, co-directed it with Judith Bryn Ingber, and we we began locally, but we toured all over the world, and every region of the United States, and in Canada and Spain, Poland, Turkey. It was just the most amazing magic carpet for us, bringing the music of Sephardic life to all of these communities. So this was also something I never imagined was part of my future, but I followed my nose, followed my ears, and mm -hmm. there it took me. I, I believe there's a Voices of Sfarad CD in my mother's car, hanging around there for, for many years. Oh, how um, wonderful. In your exploration of, of, of Jewish music, could you, could you go a little deeper on where Judaism touched your soul and, and revealed itself as a place to grow? Well, Jewish culture has so many dimensions to it. First of all, as we know, Jewish life has thrived all over the world. And as a result, Jewish music sounds very different according to that host community. Ashkenazic music coming out of Poland is an entirely different world than equally Jewish music coming out of Morocco. And I will say in the early years of Voices of Sfarad, Jewish people would come up to me and say, what's Jewish about that music? And I'd say, what's Jewish about klezmer? What's Jewish about Yiddish? It's a dialect of German. And it would force them to realize that, well, that is true, that each of us comes from a very specific root. And Jewish life has many, many roots. And that's part of the remarkable, almost singular character of Israel, the way in which all of those roots are thriving together, and sometimes if not together, then at least next to each other. And uh, all of our traditions come out of oral tradition. You know, people always want to know, oh, is that what Jewish music sounded like in the time of Moses? And I'd say we have no idea, actually, what that sounded like. We have descriptions of instruments principally because of the Psalms, but we have no idea what that music really actually sounded like. The first notated Jewish music is fairly recent, actually. It's from the Middle Ages. But there are other ways in which to look at Jewish music that have to do with what does it mean to be a Jew? Jews in the larger culture have are typically in the minority, and that often gives them the outsider's perspective. So I had a particular interest in the German playwright Bertolt Brecht, and he collaborated with many, many composers, musicians, and nearly all of them were Jewish. Kurt Weil, most famously, Hans Eisler, Stefan Volpe, Darius Mio, these were all uh, Jewish composers. And you may, may say, what does that have to do with Jewish music? Well, it's music from a, from a Jew, a Jew who's looking at the world perhaps with a critical perspective, uh, a critique of the world. And Jews have embraced that role, whether we're writers or thinkers, innovators. There's a reason why Jews have always been on the cutting edge 
of the culture that they're in, and it has to do with the uh, place that we've occupied in the larger society. And so that has colored Jewish music as well and has fascinated me. And it's yet another reason why Ramon has been able to embrace such a large range of Jewish artists. In the beginning, Jews would say, uh, say to me, well, I'm an artist and I'm Jewish, but I'm not a Jewish artist. Just want to be perfectly clear about that. And I'd say, I didn't put you in that box. You put yourself in that box. Let's think of, of Judaism as a window through which you look. And being a Jewish artist is an opportunity rather than a limitation. And so gradually we've opened, opened, opened those uh, windows, those doors, pushed those walls out so that I very rarely get someone saying that to me any longer, that they are not a Jewish artist. So part of my identity as a Jewish artist is, is first of all, the variety of what that and the, the, the almost endless possibility that that offers me but also the specificity of it as well. So proud that this is what I get to do in my, in my life on earth. Beautiful. And in your, in your answer there, you, you touched upon my most selfish question in the, in the list. Although I feel like I'm le learning about this history and your history and Ramon um, is filling me up very much as well. But my selfish qu question, is what are some interesting, unusual, dynamic success stories of, of synagogues incorporating art and artists? Mm -hmm. And also the flip side of that is how do, how do synagogues fail in that effort? What opportunities do they miss? And, and as you said, you know, some, I think it, it's acceptable and it's fine and it's appropriate that some art or some artists are not going to present themselves in the typical synagogue and we don't need to force a square peg into a round hole or whatever. Right. But, but I'm interested to hear what opportunities you think there are for, for synagogues to do more uh, to bring in the arts. First and foremost, let's just say that the arts have their foot already firmly planted, not just in the door, but on the bima in the form of the chazan. I mean, what an amazing religious tradition we have that is sung not not from start to finish, but mostly. So right from the get-go. And and if I could jump in also, also uh, chazan being the, the Hebrew word for cantor, for Jewish liturgical singer. And in, in medieval Jewish writings, there's a discussion of if a community doesn't have enough funds to, to support a rabbi and a chazan, where should the funds go? And basically the answer is, unless it's the rabbi of the generation bring in a chazan because that that's really the soul of the of the service so the presence of the chazan of course it not only lends beauty which is you know the hidur mitzvah concept of beautifying the commandment it's not enough just to do the commandment you must do it with great beauty or as much beauty as you can muster. It, it's not just that, it's the emotional bond, the community building that takes place in the act of making music. Now, I will say that the chazan is both a gift and an obstacle. 
in religious life. How dare I say that as somebody who actually has, you know, stands in those shoes. But what do I mean by that? First of all, the beauty and the uh, depth of the Chazan's voice lifts up our worship in a way that is almost indescribable. However, if the congregation is just admiring the Chazan, a big opportunity has been overlooked. So one of the ways in which a community becomes a community is by singing together. And of the many uh, opportunities that we see opening up in uh Jewish community life, you know, in 2021, I think the use of music as a community builder, like with Joey Weisenberg, and, and this is this is the future of of I think community building in the in the organized Jewish community. In my opinion, singing together is so primal and such a uplifting experience. So right there, it's right under our noses. We don't even have to look very far, is the role of the voice in music making right there. The architecture of the buildings has been an important part. It, it speaks to who we are. Of course, Temple Israel has an unusually beautiful building that houses it. And for those who perhaps, you know, get distracted during services, they can always look straight up, you know. And there's the inspiration of what that ceiling has to offer, not to mention the many beautiful ritual objects that adorn our, our ritual life. But some of the more creative projects have to do with our holidays. So, for example, one of Ramon's very earliest projects was a collaboration with the Minneapolis Institute of Art. It was called the Sukkot Project, in which artists created highly imaginative Sukkot, you know, for that holiday that spoke to the theme of homelessness. And it it evoked the most remarkable results. And a, I believe six of them were chosen and were set in different places in the Twin Cities community and then all gathered at the Institute. What a remarkable way to celebrate Sukkot. And each of our holidays has that opportunity. You ask me about ways in which the synagogues can perhaps fail artists. And first and foremost, it's by not even knowing who are the artists in their own community. I think that that is the biggest challenge of a large synagogue, although it's a challenge for any synagogue, is actually knowing who are the um, participants, what, what are their lives like, so are there artists, musicians, writers, filmmakers in your congregation? Find out who they are and what their vision might be. Is the synagogue doing a renovation or a building project? Get artists at the table. Make sure that there's an artist who's making something as part of that, is, is part of the decision-making process. Are you looking for a, a way to teach Jewish values? I mean, Ramon has funded one of the Jewish day schools with a ceramics project that illustrated, you know, f core Jewish values. I mean, I can go on and on. There's virtually nothing that goes on in a synagogue that would not be improved by an artist 
being in the in the planning and execution process. So I've overwhelmed you with ideas. I've taken some notes and I was seeking personal advice and I received it. So so thank you. I think for our final question, I will ask you for what your what your midrash, your interpretation, expansion, understanding, digging up and finding some gold of of the word Rimon mm-hmm. and what it means for the organization today. Sure. Well, Rimon is the Hebrew word for pomegranate. It's one of our most ancient symbols. And of course, what is the pomegranate famous for? It's seeds. And the seeds have been interpreted in many different ways. For some, there are 613, you know, the the mitzvot. But it also has a more general interpretation, which is of, of fertility, of creativity, of the multiplicity of ideas that spring from each of our heads. And so in Rimon, we've mostly looked at that symbol as a as an expression of what diversity is, what the full spectrum of art forms are, the many paths that artists walk, the many paths that communities walk. So we look at the Rimon as an inspiration in in the sense of why variety is critical to how we understand ourselves, how we respect each other. Sometimes people like to bring it to my attention that in modern Israeli life, Rimon has another meaning, which I believe is a hand grenade. So it's something very explosive. And let's face it, art can be explosive. It can absolutely tear open the status quo and make us see something we had never seen before. And in the less violent, but just as, just as visceral, the, the way that the pomegranate juice um, stains or, or dies in such a, a deep way also can be the effect that, an art, that art can have on, on us and uh, leave a permanent imprint in a, in a vibrant color. That's beautiful. Thank you. I should also say that the Rimon plays a role in how we decorate the Torah scrolls itself. I mean, the the beautiful crowns, crowns are called Rimonim, you know, which is the plural, because they look a little bit like a pomegranate. It's explosive. It's 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 beautiful. It's it stains our fingers. It does so many things, and that's exactly how art uh, should be described. It's the stain that stays with you after you've left the room. For good, for good. Well, thank you so much, David, for this opportunity to, to speak with you and to learn about, about Ramon and your, your really vital role in, in this organization. And as you, as you retire in six months or so, I'm excited to see how Ramon opens up its, its next chapter. And I think you've set up the Twin Cities and Ramon so well and Minnesota to continue fostering art, continue fostering Jewish art, continue fostering Jewish artists and non-Jewish artists who are who are exploring these themes as well. So I offer offer you a Temple Israel and my own gratitude that you've established this here. And I'm excited to, to keep being part of the organization and, and experiencing its fruits. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Temple Talks. Any comments or questions can be directed to me at tmoss at templeisrael.com. Can't wait for the next episode.